we have the distinguished pleasure of having Dr. Cheryl Keller Capone back on to talk about the second half. And, and that is her current success level and how she's maintaining that success and how her mind shift has really changed to allow for that. This is Pain Refrain. Well, welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Pain Reframe. So many of you will recall Cheryl's first episode where she came in and really talked about some of the challenges that she faced. I mean, really having pain from a very young age and sort of going through the, the medical system um, that has some issues within it and expressing some of those challenges with providers and diagnoses and a lot, a lot of the things we've discussed on Pain Reframed. So I think there's some great strategies in this episode for patients and providers to make sure that we don't get stuck in one train of thought or in one place, but instead that we evolve alongside each other. Dr. Cheryl Keller Capone. Welcome again. Great. Thank you so much for having me back. How's the summer gone and in terms of your pain experience and where are you at these days? Last time we spoke, I was actually getting ready to do a triathlon my very first triathlon. In my mind, this was essentially uh, sort of a celebration, if you will, of my recovery from chronic pain. I was really excited to, to do it and, and it went really well. And I, I can't even begin to really describe some of the, the various emotions that I felt, the strength uh, physically and mentally that, that I really got out of, of that experience. And wound up being a great way to kind of lead into this summer because I'm also involved in Summer of Move. This movement started by Mike Eisenhart, right, to to promote movement and, and wellness and benefits of physical activity. And uh, I, I got involved in that. I really put a lot of effort in, into really sort of celebrating my ability to get out there and be active and not worry about, you know, dealing with chronic pain, which is really not to say that I'm pain free. And I think that that's kind of an important distinction, because I think that while I'm not experiencing, you know, symptoms of what I would consider chronic pain and central sensitization, I think that it's, it is normal to accept that everyone has, you know, some sort of like little aches and pains that you're kind of monitoring and dealing with. And, and, you know, there, there's really a distinction there. So again, I think it's, I'm recovered and I consider myself recovered, but it's, it's not quite, you know, pain-free in that respect. Right. right? So I, I think that we're, you know, we all deal with certain things like that. Well, there's a, there's many things I want to go off of that with Cheryl. The first though, that, that concept of celebration and that it's interesting how if we look at celebrations and how we have, you know, throughout the year, you know, defined quote celebrations that we're supposed to we're supposed to follow, which which is good. I'm I'm a traditional type person in the sense that I do think traditions matter to our humanity and kind of, you know, those types of things. But I, I think we undervalue and we don't celebrate enough successes throughout our life. And I, I'm just interested that you and curious that you use that term celebration. And, you know, when you put that that on your calendar, that 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 was in your mind what that was, that triathlon? Yes and no. I, I think, first of all, it's important to maybe mention that I, I was a runner for many years and, and I definitely tied my identity to being a runner which of course was, a, was sort of a whole another aspect of dealing with pain, right? Because when you're, you're all of a sudden your favorite uh, sport and identity is pulled from you, it, it can be very, you know, devastating. You know, I was determined as I was recovering from pain to not put all my eggs in that basket. I, I would also try cycling and 
then I'm like, you know, maybe, maybe I'll just try swimming too. And I'm like, maybe I'll do a triathlon. And, and partly I chose swimming actually, because I, I wanted to, I, I felt it was important to try to learn new movement and, and, and move my body in different ways. Uh, and I always kind of had in the back of my mind, you know, maybe I'll try a triathlon one day. And now that I was actually putting some effort into learning how to cycle and how to swim, you know, it got closer to a reality. And I thought, wow, you know, my health is getting better and better. I think I can do this. But yet I think it's, it was also key that I wasn't relying on that triathlon uh, as validation of my success. Mm-hmm. You know, I had it in the back of my mind or in the front of my, I don't know, front, back of your mind, however. Sometimes I'm not so good with the metaphors, <laughs> but that, that I wanted to do this. But I was also very cautious in my training. I did not do any hardcore triathlon training. I ran enough, I cycled enough, and I swam enough so that I knew I could complete it. But I was not following a dedicated triathlon program. And I also absolutely gave myself the way out and permission to just not do it. And that if I woke up and I was feeling like, you know, something was a little flared or something that day, I gave myself permission in advance. That's it. It, it won't happen. And I think that having that out and, and not, again, putting my eggs in that basket was important for both my mental and physical health because I didn't want to put myself in a position where I was going to wind up with another injury by trying to push through, you know, some sort of pain that came up. Yeah, very interesting. You know, just personally, that that was my summer as I overtrained a bit with my son uh, being younger. And you you hate to pass the torch at any age uh, because, again, running is an identity of mine. It's interesting you say that. I I had to come to grips with the fact that, no, uh, I'm not I'm doing myself harm. And, yeah, I've been very injury free most of my career. But then that that just the shift of focus that writing was fine. And uh, fitness wise, I you know, this is actually pretty fun. And uh, the only downside is now that the more miles I put on my bike, you know, I want a, a nicer bike. So financially now, <laughs> you know, but it is interesting how you said that you, you, you had this identity and you had to then shift focus. And I don't personally, I don't think we dig into that deeply enough when we, you know, as, as someone in pain encounters the healthcare system that we really say, you know, and ask, I, that's a question I think I'm going to ask this week in clinic, you know, what, how do you, what is your identity in terms of activity? I think that's an interesting, interesting one. Tim, I, I love that. And Cheryl, you mentioned something I really want to just take a second to elaborate on a bit because it, it's so cool to hear you talk. And I'm not even sure if you're consciously thinking about this or not, but just, you know, to hear from your last episode, and I hope the listeners go back and hear your story of, of coming through a really, really long history of, um, I don't want to say medical mismanagement, but certainly some challenges in the, in, in the system, even from a young age and all the way through. And just to hear now, you've gotten to a point where you see so many things as being possible. Hey, I'll start to bike. Hey, I'll start to swim. <laughs> I would love to hear from your side after going through all those years of maybe feeling delicate or fragile to now starting to feel, even though you're being wise and giving yourself exit avenues, you're definitely in a place, it sounds to me, where the world is opening up. And even if you're not totally pain-free, your confidence to sort of thrive and explore the world and, and really come into your own seems very on board. Could you chat about that a bit? You know, having a lot of childhood injuries and, and sort of feeling fragile, you know, hypermobile body. And I always sort of had difficulty in, in some ways, you know, controlling my body movements. And, and I don't mean in any sort of pathological, spastic kind of way, but just in terms of, of perception of body and space and lack of 
strength and, and I think lack of strength and I don't just mean contractile strength, but you know, non-contractile strength and, you know, lack of confidence in my ability to do things. And I think that as uh, I went through the rehab process and really got into, to strength training, you know, both the, the effects on the nervous system in terms of timing and movement patterning, as well as, you know, what we think of as more physical strength, even though that's all driven by the nervous system anyway. But I think that that gave me so much more confidence. I feel so much stronger as a runner. Now, granted, now at 46, I'm, you know, my cardiovascular system, I'm probably not going to quite pick up those same times as I did when I was 19. But I, I honestly feel that I feel like that the, the opportunities right now abound, that as long as I'm smart about my training, I feel that I have a lot of potential. And I feel like I'm almost just coming into an area where I could try almost anything and eventually tackle it. And I, the, the confidence that I really got um, from the strength training and feeling more resilient is phenomenal. That is so cool. Cheryl, it really, I think, highlights this this great picture that we have to be willing to shift gears with our patients. So, you know, when we're working with somebody who has persistent pain, in you know, that first part, you and I, we, we all talked in, our, in your first episode about how the education of, of pain science and in calming down your nervous system and, and really getting a good understanding and some strategies early on was huge. But now the gear shift, right? And, and now you have that understanding and you've got a great framework to work with. And now going into, hey, I'm going to start getting stronger. Like, I'm going to start loading this system. I'm going to do it in a smart way, but I'm going to start building legitimate physical challenges and overcome them and let my system develop. Who gave you the impetus for that? Was that something you learned in PT? Was that just something you began to feel called to do? How did you wind up going that direction and really start valuing strength training? Well, really, it was the, the, the physical therapist that I began working with, you know, when I was at my lowest point. And really, it's such a complex case at this point with, with you know, multifactorial and multidimensional issues going on, you know, there was no clear problem in terms of right structural or mechanistically, there was many issues that had kind of come together, you know, so uh, his view at the time was instead of, you know, chasing, going around the body and, and chasing different things, you know, let's work on focusing on improving, um, you know, function and performance, you know, do a, do a farmer's carry with, you know, 20 kilograms in your right hand and you can only manage 10 kilograms in your left hand because you're having trouble stabilizing your body. Well, that's kind of pointing out something that you should probably work on, you know? Um, so, so those sorts of things being coming more aware of, you know, differences and, and kind of asymmetries. And let me be clear as I recognize that asymmetries and posture and, and that there's very, limited evidence or a fact that there's evidence to show that that they don't matter or they don't cause pain. But my view on that is that over one's lifetime, you know, you kind of accumulate these asymmetries or movement patterns, uh, compensations and so forth. And while individually they don't cause pain, I don't think you necessarily assign a cause and effect to each one of them. But I think that over the course of your lifetime, they add up, you know, and start filling the bucket, basically lower the tolerance, you know, or increase the, the potential for threat, you know, such that anything you're adding on top of that is going to is going to be the tipping point. You know, it's not necessarily a good idea to, to focus on any one cause, you know, of pain per se, or attribute pain to one cause. I also don't think that in my experience, it was 
it certainly was worthwhile addressing some of those asymmetries because each time you did that, I felt like it removed stuff from the bucket and increased my strength, increased my resilience and increased my ability to uh, face, you know, different external forces, if you will, and, and tackle them without actually feeling weak or, or, you know, potential for injury. Yeah. And I think it's interesting how you said that, uh, Cheryl, about, yeah, any one asymmetry and, you know, hyper focus on, you know, one component of, you know, how one moves is, is not necessarily the strategy. But again, as you stated, cumulatively over time, I mean, most of us would say that we probably don't want to just walk on the outside of our foot for the next five years. You know, let's just load that part of our, our foot. Because as you mentioned, you're going to lose resiliency to go the other way. And mm-hmm. that ultimately, you, you've used that term resiliency and this, this look at a quote asymmetries or faulty movement patterns or if we don't want to use faulty, less than optimal and balanced movement patterns, you know, cumulatively, it decreases your resiliency, right? I mean, you, you have just as older adults are more at risk for falling, their world begins to close in because they have less degrees of freedom in their hips, their knees, their ankles. I mean, we, we have good evidence for that. You know, it's a little more challenging when we take a one moment in time and say, you know, we see people with asymmetries and without, and at that moment in time, are, are they having pain or not? It's just a snapshot versus, as you've mentioned, really looking throughout time and not overly focusing to create fear in a patient, but to do it from a very positive, fun perspective. Say, hey, balance is cool. Uh, why don't we get you moving so equally and that you're strong in both, whether you're carrying something in your right hand or in your left hand. So, yeah, I think that's a, that's a, was well stated what you did. And I, I wanted to follow up though also with this idea of you mentioned running and feeling stronger. Term that came to mind, are, are you a thoughtful runner now? What I mean by that is I see so many runners out there with headphones in and just with that lack of a better term, slamming the pavement and not aware of their body um, and being consciously, like any activity, being conscious about how you do it in your form. You know, I think that, that certain sports certainly require a higher level technique or skill than others, right? And, and people are going to be naturally better at one versus the other for a variety of reasons. And I think that most people tend to think is running, of, well, just go out and run. And people can do that. And sometimes it, that they can run for many years, injury free, no problems. Whereas in other times, you know, I think that it's, it's, you know, not paying enough attention, um, or just kind of going out without any, any thoughtfulness or mindfulness, you know, can then sometimes lead to, to issues. What's interesting actually is that early on while I was going through some pain, I, you know, I, I was definitely a, really solid heel striker and I had a lot of pretty strong lumbar curve with a lot of kyphosis and I definitely was kind of hunched over and sort of pulling myself forward and I, I tried to do some gait training back then and I was really just unable to make those changes I don't know if it was necessarily the skill but I think that I lacked the appropriate sort of range of motion and um, coordination to make those changes in terms of trying to land a little bit more under my center of gravity. But interestingly, just, I, you know, I'd wound up taking about three years off of running completely, really working on developing, you know, sort of opening the chest, developing the ability to have more thoracic extension, 
distinguishing, you know, hip motion from spinal motion and so forth, that when I got back to running, I actually naturally adopted a more quote unquote, you know, ideal, I, I know I, and people don't like that term, and but uh, a better, you know, more ideal, again, I'm using quotes, a running posture where, you know, I, I'm more leading with, you know, the, the chest, I'm landing more under my center of gravity, I'm naturally adopting a sort of a mid midfoot, forefoot strike, and I feel so much more balanced without any sort of gait training, but but yet training in terms of sort of the movement patterns and kind of resetting the nervous system, if you will, I feel much better running. And now I, I, I realize, wow, this is just so different. You know, instead of picking up, instead of like focusing on landing, you know, I'm picking up my feet. And I do think that there is uh, some element of mindfulness because occasionally when I'm getting, when I'm getting a little tired, you know, there's sort of that natural tendency to kind of hunch forward a little bit with your shoulders. I have a difficult time with the whole forward lean at the ankles view, but for me, what, what works for me uh, is sort of a, feeling like I'm being sort of pulled forward from sort of the navel as if a string, you know, which, which, which prevents me from that sort of forward hunched over kind of thing. So I, I do sort of pay attention from time to time if I feel as though my, my form is kind of breaking down. Uh, so I think that I am a more mindful runner and I try not to sort of push the distance, you know, past that point where I'm really feeling like the form breaking down. Thanks for sharing that. And the, la- the last question I want to have on this running concept is that you also mentioned it, it was about three year hiatus. And I'm curious, did you think way back, uh, that you, you basically would not run again or you had never really thought that? I was hesitant. I mean, I, let me be clear is that I'm not really, you know, I've, I've had pain since childhood, right? And I am not afraid to run. I'm not afraid of pain. In that respect, I ran through pain. I had almost felt like I almost always had some sort of running injury and I just kept going. I'm literally unless forced to stop. And I even kept going, you know, I was running well into this feel having these symptoms of central sensitization and nervous system overload. And I actually had to stop because I was literally having trouble walking. You know, I, I could, I was felt like I was literally dragging my leg. It was more of a running like limp. I thought this is ridiculous. You know, yeah. this is really to the point where I am causing myself more harm. You know, I tried, I really tried to keep going and keep moving. And, and it just, if I'm having trouble walking, you know, I, I probably shouldn't be running at this point. Let me take a break, put it out of my mind. And, and when things were that bad, I thought, you know, running was not even on my goal list. You know, I just wanted to, to be, you know, relatively pain free and get rid of this you know, feeling like my nervous system was kind of on fire and being stretched in all directions. The PT had had said to me, and and let me be clear, this is is an extremely helpful statement that I held on to, is that he said, Cheryl, I don't see anything that would preclude a full recovery. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, okay, that's good to know. You know, and and Mm -hmm. even though it seemed very grim outlook at the time, but it it was really that statement that that Mm -hmm. I really felt was very powerful. Because honestly, for me, some of the early assurance was uh, in a way kind of damaging to me because I felt that I was being very falsely reassured. People were reassuring me, oh, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. Everything will be fine. I'm like, no, I don't really think so. You know, this isn't fine. I'm not fine. Mm-hmm. You know, I failed their treatment. I'm still not fine. You know, and then you get this sense of ho- hopelessness. Whereas in the statement that 
I don't see anything. I don't see any problem that would preclude a recovery. That's such a wonderful statement because it, it's not unrealistic. You know, it, it's playing the that key role of being a hope dealer, you know, and, and letting the patient know there, there's a chance. It, it also leaves on the table the fact that there's some work to be done with all parties here. You know, the, I don't see anything precluding it, but but don't don't mistake that for saying it's going to be easy or it's going to be fast. Exactly. I'm a realist. And I think that, you know, kind of pushing for me, you know, pushing that kind of, oh, be positive and be positive. You'll get back there. And I, I always kind of annoyed me, kind of, honestly, <laughs> because I thought, well, how do you know that? You know, you don't know that. Right. And right, <laughs> even your friends and family, oh, be positive. Look at you, be positive. You know, I'm, no, I'm not positive, <laughs> but I am a realist. And, and I said, okay. I can be realistic about this. And it's been so cool to hear both you and Tim talking this morning. And one, one theme I keep picking up on is I want, I want to use the right words here, but certainly this mindfulness, right? And it's interesting how that particular concept intertwines this entire story from the very beginning, right? Like when you first started to improve from that, what you might call rock bottom, it was really about mindfulness, right? And calming down the nervous system and making good decisions and, and getting a little bit of a dose of hope and, and all the right things. And now here we are way down the road doing triathlons, feeling significantly better, but still mindfulness, a huge component. You being aware that to be mentally healthy going into that triathlon, you needed to, to be honest about that exit route being available. The fact that with your running, being aware that your, your impact forces were probably pretty high in the way you were slamming down on the ground. Again, mindfulness, mindfulness, mindfulness. I just think that into the more I hang around Tim, maybe, maybe too his bias is, is leaking over into me. But I think that, that that's a huge step forward for anyone dealing with this stuff. Do you have, Cheryl, any specific meditations you're doing or any, any mental discipline exercises that you're doing to foster that mindfulness um, so that it kind of spreads across everything that you do in your life? That's a good question. I don't really do any meditation. I, I do do several minutes every day of diaphragmatic breathing, you know, where I really lay down on the floor and take some time to calm the nervous system. And in that case, I do kind of clear my mind. What I would say that though for me with mindfulness is I do practice mindful movement in the morning, you know, as, as part of my sort of strength session where I will uh, explore movement and pay attention to using uh, whether or not I'm using the same pattern on both sides. For example, I, you know, I've had the, had a rotational injury and I also have some evidence of rotational scoliosis and I'm not going to attribute that in particular to, to pain, but you know, I also had some sort of a neck rotation issue when I was young and you know, it, it's possible, you know, whether that's really a functional or structural scoliosis, who knows? And then I think it almost doesn't really matter. There's also the issue of brain maps and whether or not if I haven't actually moved in a certain way in a very long time for me, possibly decades, you know, maybe it was just an issue of, of not having that, sort of option available to my brain. So I think that when I practice some of this mindful movement, you know, I realize, oh, wow, I'm, I, I really can't move as well, you know, can't rotate or roll as well to my left as I can to my right. And why not? You know, and then I'll explore a little bit and really try to think, oh, well, when I reach across, you know, in one direction, I'm reaching across one way, but when I roll the other way, you know, I'm using some sort of uh, compensatory mechanism to get there. So I try to uh, try to learn and, and learn what one side of my body is doing. What's my brain doing when it's controlling my one side versus what my brain's doing versus the other side. And I've found that I've been able to restore a lot of symmetry in my movement and my rotation just by kind of paying attention to 
the fact that I was doing things differently on different sides. And again, this goes back to, well, maybe asymmetries and, and, and not getting hyper-focused on that. But for me, rot- spinal rotation was a very, was very provocative to mm-hmm. my pain. My brain obviously felt threat by rotation. For me, I thought, well, then it makes sense to spend a little time you know, trying to restore a little symmetry so that my brain feels safe. You know, we use that term kind of meditation and mindfulness, and you've just described whatever label we want to put on it, you have a mindful practice, and you're, it's very mindful about how you go about exploring movement in your body and awareness. I would uh, challenge you to say, wow, you have a very mindful practice every day. Hopefully the listeners are anchoring on that because it is key because you laid right into why it's key. I do believe, you know, you have a, a quote, whether the term structural or functional, you have a scoliosis, you have a curve in your spine. You have for many years you know, look to the world, to the left or the right, you know, whatever. I mean, because of of a curve there and had just by nature of the anatomy would have had limited motion one direction. But over time, often that narrows that window, especially as you said, rotation was a threat because it brought on symptoms. So that window narrowed even further. You know, form, function, you know, does function follow form? Uh, and then, you know, function changes the form. I mean, I think we're bodies that are constantly adapting neurophysiologically, but also musculoskeletally. You know, again, those loads on your spine have changed. You know, sure. you now load that into that area that, you know, your is your, quote, limited area. You're loading it very differently. So that provides mechanoreceptor input. It requires literally bone change. And that, you know, there's no doubt, I bet you, if you wanted to see anatomically over time, both at the micro and macro level, there changes occur because, you know, bones are living tissue. So I always, I think you've, you've nailed it when, when you describe that. And I love that idea that you now, you 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 go into that area that you've that was initially fearful or, or pain inducing you're now able to tease into that do you still sense there's a barrier like you said one direction is worse does it feel like a barrier uh, how would you describe that end feel i'm just curious what it feels like when you get there interesting well actually quite honestly the barrier that I feel, and I'm going to use the term obstruction, but I, you know, it's mm-hmm. all, I don't. Eh, That's a good word. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, is actually with extension. But if I add the rotation component first, then I get the extension. Interesting. So, you know, just working in the sagittal plane, I, I have a hard, a harder time getting the thoracic extension, the mid to, mm-hmm. mid to upper thoracic extension I need. If I, you know, rotate my head to the left, Oh, I get, I get, can feel all that, you know, cavitation all the way down the spine and get a lot of motion. So now, but as I've worked now too, so then I spent some time looking to the left, you know, getting rotation, getting the extension, and now I'm getting better extension in the sagittal plane. You know, so in a way, I, I kind of found a directional preference, and if you will, and, and however you want to define that. But, uh, you know, so I l- look for those of what, what might help and then, but then go back and, and try and, and move in, in, you know, multiple planes. So I just find an avenue in there. And again, I'm not, I don't think I'm hyper-focused on that either. That just for no. me was a, was a limitation. And, you know, I thought, well, if I can spend some time each morning kind of improving that, then something else might open up. 
It's interesting you said hyper focus. I'm on the focus series on you know the uh, meditation app Headspace, and he talks a lot about soft focus. In fact, he he argues against this intense focus on if doing what you're doing. Rather having a soft focus, not really, you know, and as you've kind of described, you're kind of exploring, you're not overly freaking out about it, but you're just saying, hmm, what's that feel like and what does it go here? And it's a very soft focus. I don't know if that word resonates with you. I think so. I, I, I think, too, that I, I try to look at an output in, in some ways that if, though, if and which then it will kind of more toward a heavier focus. So, you know, okay. just even, for example, like if I found that you know, working on something then led to overall better function. You know, like one time I just even kind of looked working on a little bit of, you know, adductor strength and, and all of a sudden my squat improved like tremendously squat. And I thought, okay, well, that means I should spend a little more time on this, you know? So I think that if I, I found that it improved function, I probably would spend a little bit more time on it. With working on rotation, I have actually found that my farmer carries and my crossbody carries are more symmetrical. I mean, I don't know if I'm between hyper-focused and soft-focused because I don't want to think hyper-focused on this absolutely has to be fixed and this is my barrier. Like, that's not the way I'm viewing it. But, I, but I'm viewing it as an avenue to, of improvement more than a, a barrier. Mm-hmm. I've always loved the term non-judgmental awareness. You know, that just seems to resonate with me. And, and, and that seems to foster the positive changes in the folks that, that we work with, you know, because what's cool about what I would call non-judgmental awareness or in others we might call mindfulness is that if you can foster it in somebody, it helps to move the needle in the right direction for that person. And that's the beauty of it, you know, because oftentimes you have folks who come in, they're highly competitive. They, they are running through really significant injuries and they don't want to stop and they don't even want to give that, that thought any, any mental energy. You know what I mean? And I completely know what you mean because <laughs> I used to be there. <laughs> totally. And, and fostering some awareness in that person lets them know without you even saying much that, you know what? I need to chill out. Like very, very similar to what happened through your history. On the other side, you've got patients coming in who are very inactive and really external locus of control and, and not taking responsibility and not pushing nearly enough. And again, if you can foster some awareness in those folks, the, the result of that is they say, you know what? I got to step up. You know, the point is that I think that the journey to developing awareness really offers a solution for almost every N equals one. I guess, Tim, I would, I would almost ask you as a practitioner who thinks about this a lot. Do, do you recommend the Headspace app or do you have other ways, Tim, that you encourage folks to reflect on where they're at and, and where they might best step forward? I do recommend that app, but not early on. Um, I recommend more what Cheryl was talking about on breathing and using, you know, that idea of a a breath and focus there as their initial stage. And there's lots of different breathing techniques, but that's generally how I start there. As you know, some people may seem, hear meditation and think, you know, it may be against their perspective of spirituality or theology or whatever it may be. They may have a, you know, negative connotation to that. So I, I'm, I'm careful in how I, I, when I go and recommend those types of things, because again, many people interpret that, okay, so it's all in my head. You're just telling me to, you know, my head's messed up, right? And so I think it's, it's a timing issue, but I think, you know, breath work, you know, just especially on a dialed up nervous system, we know fight or flight, if you're not breathing, it's just, 
amplifying that 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 effect. So I really take it from that perspective first. As people get some buy-in, then say, hey, there's other uh, apps and things that can help you uh, guide you through there. If you're like me, I need somebody keeping track of my minutes and reminding me to do this stuff, you know. And can you commit to ten minutes a day? And that's kind of how I, I broach it. That's interesting. I think that when I first was dealing with this central sensitization and, you know, I, I didn't really want to give this five minutes of breathing or 10 minutes of breathing a day or whatever. I thought, you know, I'm the scientist. This, let's get the mechanism. What is this? And, and, and really my spirituality, admittedly, I'm like, eh, you know, that, that's just a waste of time. Like I honestly was really, that was my attitude. But once I hit that rock bottom, that I realized that my perspective and attitude was going to have to change and be more open, you know, to, you know, to, to trying some of these different things and changing my viewpoint. So uh, it's unfortunate. I think that people, some people have to get to that point. I think with, you know, dealing with, with chronic pain, you know, it does sometimes take a lot to get to the point where you're actually willing to make some serious long-term changes to your approach to life, to exercise, you know, to your, you know, your approach. Yeah, well, I think that's well stated because we've had, a, you know, on the podcast, uh, addiction specialists and things and that, that concept of rock bottom, which it's unfortunate. Sometimes that's where folks are at when we see them. And I often say, you know, that's the time of where the most needed resources are there, but often patients are most vulnerable, people are most vulnerable then, and that's where, mm -hmm. you know, just having the right provider and the right message that doesn't make rock bottom go into the sub-basement by, you know, doing just more to the person that might cause greater harm. So right. uh, <laughs> that's always a, a a vulnerable place. But, you know, first of all, I, as we wrap up here, Cheryl, thanks. It, this has been fun. I mean, there's so many interesting things and I'd love to have you back on because I still have a, a list of six things I want to go <laughs> on here. Uh, but, you know, in the interest of time, I just, I just want to thank you again for joining us on the podcast. And do you have any closing comments, Jeff? This is such a great story. I appreciate it. It's so cool that we have both episodes now. One, to kind of talk about the challenging journey and then one to sort of talk about your success and maintaining that and strategies. And I think as providers and patients, we all need to see both sides of that. And we all need to be willing to be flexible sort of throughout that whole spectrum and use different strategies along the way. So just a huge thanks. And Cheryl, really, I, I really want to say thanks for everything you're doing on social media. It might not be a big deal to you, but you sharing those stories of, of, of where you've come from and, and showing some of those pictures um, of you looking stronger and better and happier and healthier, that is some motivating stuff. I mean, there's a lot of folks seeing that who, you know, are trying to get there. And, and thanks for thanks for putting that out there, so they have an example of what that future can hold for them. I think it's a really big deal. Well, well thank you very much. I mean, for for all your kind words, and, and certainly for the opportunity to come back on again. Uh, yeah, I've, I've had actually a number of people contact me uh, in different ver forms of social media via Facebook and Twitter, uh, and. You know, and, and by no means am I consider myself, you know, I'm not a clinician, I'm not offering any specific, you know, injury advice or anything. But I think that trying to, to share some general approaches is, is, I think, you know, people seem 
you know, appreciative. And, and some people just want to talk, you know, <laughs> just really want to get their story out. And I can appreciate that too, you know, because it, it, it's tough being in pain. And, and then you realize eventually that everyone is tired of hearing about your pain, right? So <laughs> sometimes you just need to talk. Um, but yeah, it, it's been great. And, and I'm glad that people have found it inspiring. And uh, I hope to continue. And I certainly welcome future interactions with with, you know, everyone. So Awesome. Well, thanks again, Cheryl. I, I would officially plug your Summer of Move team if, if your Summer of Move team wasn't so badly beating my Summer of Move team. Um, <laughs> I would be happy to give you some attention. Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's kind of funny. I didn't, I, I almost didn't do it. I'll be honest with you. I was not a very good athlete as a child, you know, until I found running because again, a poor coordination and so forth. So I, I actually was a little hesitant to sign up because I was kind of afraid of being picked last in gym class. It really, I really just kind of felt like this. And, <laughs> That's you know, great. <laughs> and then I, I, I found out that I was picked in the first dra- first round of the draft, and then I felt all this pressure, you know. But, <laughs> but yet at the same time, I'm like, woohoo, this is awesome! Yeah, well, kick some butt, you know. I'll, it's I'll been sure, really fun. I'll make sure to tell Mike Eisenhart that he is applying significant pressure to people out there. That's great. No, no, I, I, I'm, I'm just I'm kidding. Jo- I mean, I'm joking. Uh, it was, it was all, it's all good, and I, it, it was a perfect summer for me to do it because I got to really celebrate movement and being active. So it was so great. Cool. So. Thank you again. Really appreciate it. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks, Cheryl. I think the key element she hit this time was that whole idea of mindful movement and the ability to really explore and understand self. And, you know, clearly many times folks are not at that point yet, but really we heard, you know, that's where we're bringing folks and, you know, those in the healthcare space and those uh, listeners out there suffering from painful conditions, knowing that there is, you know, there is that that way forward and it's success that, that that's going to be in the future continue giving us feedback if you can follow us on uh, social media you can find jeff and i there on twitter we want to shout out to our sponsors ispinstitute.com really without them we're not we wouldn't be out here broadcasting and you can also follow us on evidenceinmotion.com on the blog there i'm going to do an ask today and that ask is you know to have each you go to itunes and and give us uh, some feedback or a shout out there on itunes that we're really trying to create a grassroots movement of clinicians and patients around the country and we believe we can change the face of pain in america so the bigger crowd we get the bigger our voice gets so i encourage you all go to itunes give us a shout out there if you're enjoying what we're doing have an awesome day pain reframed is brought to you by our sponsor the international spine and pain institute check out their transformative pain science programming at ispinstitute.com